Welcome to Facts Roundtable, a podcast dedicated to navigating life with food allergies across the lifespan. Presented in a welcoming format with interviews and open discussions, each episode will explore a specific topic, leaving you with the facts to know or use. Information presented via this podcast is educational and not intended to provide individual medical advice. Please consult with your personal board-certified allergist or healthcare providers for advice specific to your situation. Hi, everyone. I'm Caroline Mawasasi, and I am your host for the Fact Roundtable podcast. I am a food allergy parent, advocate, and the founder of the Grateful Foodie blog, and I am Fact's Vice President of Community Relations. Before we start today, I would just like to take a moment to thank the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology for their kind sponsorship of FACTS Roundtable podcast. And please note that today's guest was not sponsored by the college or compensated in any way by the sponsor to participate in this specific podcast. Welcome back, Jim, to Facts Roundtable Podcast. I am absolutely thrilled for today's conversation on food allergy diagnosis. As a parent of children with food allergies, this is the thorn in my side. And to hear that we have change on the horizon just excites me. That's great to be back, Caroline. Let's dive right into today's conversation about food allergy diagnosis. And let's start at the beginning. Can you explain how a person is diagnosed with a food allergy, and then why is it so hard to get a solid answer? That's a very important question, and you're right. It, it is difficult. And, uh, and instead of actually starting from the beginning, we can start where the diagnosis is established, and that's usually at an allergist's office. And the, the gold standard for diagnosing whether or not you're allergic is called an oral food challenge. And it takes a bit to get uh, into a clinic. It takes a bit of, of uh, logistics to actually go through an oral food challenge. So then we can back up. There's very often a suspected food allergy. And the reason it's it, we would use the term suspected is because it's very difficult, especially in kids, to pinpoint which food caused the reaction. And it's called the history. Um, so sometimes the history is very clear. The only thing the baby had on the tray was peanuts. And the reaction started as soon as the peanut butter touched her lip or something like that. The only food on the table was the birthday cake. And there it can get tricky. What's in the birthday cake? Eggs, milk, nuts, chocolate. So the history is, is really important. And it's difficult to get a solid diagnosis when you have this kind of ambiguous history. And maybe it's been a few months because when the baby reacted, the first thing we did was go to the pediatrician and the pediatrician ordered a bunch of blood tests and they came back positive and pediatrician didn't know what to do. So referred us to an allergist and it took six months to see this allergist as a new patient. We had to relive the history. So the allergist kind of starts over and they may go right for a skin prick test. And that's a test where the skin is perturbed with a needle and the, the antigen or the food type is introduced. If there's a reaction, then it could be a food allergy to that particular food. If there's no reaction, that's actually pretty definitive. When the answer is ambiguous, when it's not a super big reaction, 
and the history is kind of sketchy, then allergists will order a blood test. And very often when those tests are negative, they're indicative of not having a food allergy. But when they're positive, there is a problem with that with those tools. They're they're not always accurate. And a positive blood test and a positive skin prick test don't correlate to a reaction to that particular food. It's thought that there would be a reaction to the food. So the final step would be to schedule what I described earlier, the oral food challenge. And that's really routinely done in research. It's very seldom done in clinics. But in a research setting, it can be established that you're allergic because you react to the food. You react to peanut or you react to milk, you react to egg. And you do these oral food challenges one food at a time. And it's, again, the definitive way to understand whether or not you have a food allergy. If you don't do the oral food challenge, then the allergist and the individual or the caregiver really decide, okay, it looks like there's a food allergy here. Let's proceed with life as if there is a food allergy. And then maybe someday we'll do that oral food challenge. So that's, Caroline, that may be the story that you would have told about your own experience with your kids, but that's a, that's the story I hear all the time from moms and dads, but also from allergists. Allergists also would recite back, the most important thing is the history and if the history is ambiguous, then we have some unwinding to do here with the tools that we currently have. That is exactly our story to a T. Pediatrician, skin prick, blood test, and then some challenge, a lot of not challenges and so forth. And then throughout the years, trying to touch base again with the allergist to see where we are. And we're going to be getting into that very shortly here. So now moving on, recently, the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology held its scientific meeting in Louisville, Kentucky. And for listeners, this is one of the largest meetings in the nation. People attend from all over the country, all over the world to learn about new research, how they handle things in clinics, to exchange and learn. And so you're talking, you know, about a thousand plus or thousands of allergists coming together to learn. So that's what this meeting is. So now at this meeting, though, I did listen to a physician during a session discuss overdiagnosis of food allergy as a very genuine concern within the allergist community. So Jim, can you tell us about overdiagnosis and how it can impact one's quality of life? I can explain it, and it is an issue And in food allergy, it's an issue because of the anxiety that an individual and a family feels when they're told that they must strictly avoid something. And the way our minds and our bodies work, in order to avoid something, there has to be a certain level of anxiety. If you're told you should avoid putting your hand in a a fire, when you see fire, there's going to be some level of anxiety because you know that's going to burn. When it's your little girl and you're told that she must strictly avoid egg, caregivers, moms do everything they can to practice this strict vigilance, this strict avoid. And there's a lot of anxiety that comes with that. If the little girl actually isn't allergic to egg, then that anxiety wasn't needed. That strict vigilance wasn't needed. All of the special diets and the avoiding birthday parties if it's overdiagnosed or misdiagnosed, then the family didn't need to live through that. 
Overdiagnosis is a term that is associated with thinking there's a disease or an indication present when there's not. Underdiagnosis would be there's a disease or an indication present, but you didn't, you didn't recognize it. Overdiagnosis with food allergy is a problem because of the anxiety and the expense, the years of ang- anguish, the years of uh, avoiding social interaction. Underdiagnosis can also be a problem. And in food allergy, that's rare. It's very rare that somebody is, is told they don't have a food allergy when they do. And it's been years in the making where with the current tools and what I said earlier about the ambiguous history, it's more likely that we're going to assume somebody has a food allergy because of this ambiguous history and the not so great tools because it's far safer to say avoid the food. It's not easier. And that's been a realization that a lot of allergists have started to understand especially when the tools are poor and there could be a a likelihood of an overdiagnosis or a false positive, it's really not that easy to strictly avoid milk for your whole life or strictly avoid eggs when you're a, a child. And this vigilance that comes into play, and I mentioned people withdrawing from social activities, when you're told that your little boy has to strictly avoid milk and egg and peanuts, then why go to a birthday party? And when it's time to go to summer camp, how are we going to pick a summer camp that we know the cafeteria is going to be as vigilant as we are at home around avoiding milk and egg and peanuts? So this withdrawal is really revolving around this prescription, which is strictly avoid. So when somebody doesn't have a food allergy, but they're told to strictly avoid it, it has a huge impact on the quality of life. You are just mentioning the withdrawal. I remember when my son went to asthma camp and the camp asked me, can you stay? And Layla was a newborn. And so I had spent the day at this asthma camp with the newborn because the camp leaders just felt that they couldn't manage all those different allergies. So when you talk about quality of life, I mean, not only is it the patient, but it impacts the family. It impacts work, taking off time from work to do things like this. And then, like you said, going to a party. I mean, I'll be really honest. When I used to take my kids to parties, I actually would bring baby wipes to wipe, but I would bring baby wipes for myself. I literally would sweat during social events. I would physically sweat. Okay, there's the ugly confession out there, but it's true, very stressful. And so as my son outgrew certain allergens, the need for me to deal with my sweat and stressing started to come down. And when my son finally at 16 was able to finally consume pizza, I mean, it was like the heavens opened up. Young boy on a sports team, pizza is everything. And being able to pretty much go into any pizza parlor now was just huge. I mean, it's just life-changing. So I fully understand and appreciate really recognizing that over diagnosis that, boy, if if he could have had pizza a day sooner, we would have been all over that. Well, Caroline, you talked about your stress and the relief that you had around his outgrowth. In the last five years, there's been a lot of work done and a lot of studies published around the parents suffer actually more than the child does. The anxiety is a much higher, particularly for moms, much higher 
than it is for the individual with the food allergy. I remember when I first started with allergenists, I asked this teenager now is 16. She was probably 11 when I met her. I said, what's the worst part about living with a food allergy? And she said, the way my mom looks at me when I'm eating. And I asked the mom, what does she mean? And the mom said, yeah, it's true. I'm so stressed out every time she puts something in her mouth. So I have to look away because I'm just so afraid she's going to accidentally ingest something that she's allergic to. Oh, wow. That is intense. I, and I fully understand that. And actually just, you know, one more sidebar point here on the anxiety. My son's 24 now, and he just got recently diagnosed with food allergy PTSD. Who hmm. knew? It was very fascinating, but he had a couple of episodes and went to speak to a therapist who very quickly identified it. So he had been carrying a lot of his anxiety throughout the years and my anxiety too. And finally, it all just came together at age 24, which is wonderful because now he's getting the tools to deal with it. But I have to say, I really underestimated that stress that he was feeling and living. Like when you just mentioned this daughter, seeing the the parent, I really, really underestimated it. So that's why for me in particular, personally, this conversation is so important because I think, again, if we can avoid that overdiagnosis and really get a true picture, then we can get better strategies. And the, the way to solve the overdiagnosis is with better tools, but also the oral food challenge. So our blood test, it helps the conversation with providers, with allergists and the caregivers or the family around going ahead to proceed with the oral food challenge. There's a lot of reasons that it's beneficial to Try the food that you believe you're allergic to. If you're not allergic to it, if you eat the food safely, then great. What a revelation. And if you're able to get through the oral food challenge and, and get to a very high dose before you react, wow, great. What a revelation. So one of the ways to solve for overdiagnosis is with better blood tests like ours, but also convincing the individual and the family to go ahead with the oral food challenge. Right. That is it. So let's just dive right into Allergenis now. So looking specifically at what you're trying to do and Allergenis as a company and your goal of answering not only the question, am I allergic, but then the million dollar question of how allergic am I? So can you share with our listeners now more information about what your company is doing to redefine the food allergy diagnosis world? Sure. We started about five years ago as a commercial company and building a laboratory to be able to offer an improved blood test to allergists and individuals. The research around our offering started in the late 90s. And the research that Hugh Sampson embarked on was to identify the mechanistic reason for a food allergy response or a food allergy reaction. The biology behind why does somebody react to peanut and somebody doesn't? Why does a little girl outgrow egg allergy, but her sister did not? Or a little boy is a good candidate for milk oral immunotherapy, but another little boy is not. What's the biological difference there? And he identified the specific epitopes or other another word for it is peptide. It's an amino acid chain. Back to high school chemistry, it's a all food is made up of proteins and proteins are made up of amino acids. So there's a particular sequence that the immune response doesn't recognize accurately. And it makes too many antibodies against a particular antigen because the immune response 
isn't seeing this antigen in, in the right way. So a, a biological systematic response occurs. We are looking for that peptide in peanut or those peptides in milk, those peptides in egg, our blood test isn't looking at the whole IgE antibody. It's looking at the specific antibody that is being produced to a specific part of the antigen or part of the food protein. So yeah, we're looking to vastly improve the accuracy of the diagnosis. And that the way we do that is to compare the results of our blood test to the known outcome of a subject in a clinical trial that went through an oral food challenge. So when, when we developed the test and our blood test came back as negative, not allergic to peanut, we compared that to all of the patients in these validation clinical trials that were not allergic and they safely went through an oral food challenge. And when our blood test said positive, we compared those results to this same clinical trials, but only the patients that reacted during an oral food challenge. So we came up with a 93% accuracy rate. And that is how many times does our blood test agree with an oral food challenge? How many times does our negative blood test and our positive blood test correlate to the outcome of an oral food challenge? And that compares in peanut to about a 60% accuracy rate could be as high as 70% accuracy with skin prick and IgE testing combined. And our next product is for milk, and it looks like the performance is even better over the current tools for milk allergies, uh, where we see about a 60% accuracy rate in peanuts, about a 40% accuracy rate in milk. And we, again, are going to be in the 90s for, as I said, for peanut and for milk we're setting off to accurately answer the question, am I allergic? Now let's turn to the million dollar question of how allergic am I? So it's been um, shared quite often that an allergy is binary. You either are allergic or you're not. And the first time I heard that, we had already gotten through understanding some of the information we could get from this blood test. And again, the first time I heard it, I thought, well, is that true of pregnancy? You either are pregnant or you're not. So I could see why somebody would say that. But having two kids and gone through the whole cycle, I know there's a difference between being eight weeks pregnant and being 12 weeks pregnant. When you're eight weeks pregnant, you may not tell everybody. When you're 12 weeks pregnant, you start telling your friends. When you're 16 weeks pregnant, you start having different kinds of blood tests. When you're 20 weeks pregnant, you start getting pressure about, is the nursery done yet? When you're 32 weeks pregnant, things are a lot different from when you were 12 weeks pregnant and so on. So when I talk about you're either allergic or you're not, I, I have to really insist that we know there's a, there's a gradation. We know there's a stratification. And again, it comes from the clinical trials that use oral food challenges to determine how much somebody reacts to, how much milk does somebody actually react to, how much peanut does somebody react to. And there's different terminologies around how much is ingested. The amount that you can eat safely in an oral food challenge is called the highest tolerated dose. And all of the food that you ate up until that point is called the cumulative 
tolerated dose. So that's how much can you safely eat. And that is known when you are in an oral food challenge, even if you react, because the, the reactive dose is the amount of food that actually triggers their reaction. And it's the first dose or the first level, the first threshold that triggers a reaction. And it's not always a trace element of peanut. It's not always a trace element of baked egg. There's a huge stratification. In fact, it's the majority of patients can tolerate quite a bit of the food that they're allergic to. And that's well-documented, well-proven by the results of oral food challenges in clinical trials. It's just not widely shared. The reason is because of the risk associated with telling somebody that they can safely eat a certain amount of peanut, there's a risk associated with letting that family go out and try on their own to test out whether or not they're going to react. The problem with not sharing thresholds is that most people can tolerate a fair amount of peanut. Most people can tolerate a fair amount of milk. So it's not necessarily that cross-contamination is going to be a, a factor. And that's true at an ice cream shop. That's true at a birthday party. That's true at home. That's true at school. If it's known that somebody, that a little girl has a threshold of 300 milligrams of peanut, that's a whole peanut. That's the whole kernel. It's not likely she's going to accidentally eat that. And if she does, and she has that threshold, she's likely going to have a, a very mild reaction, which creates a much different quality of life from living in the fear that even a trace amount of peanut is going to trigger a reaction. And what this helps people do is to have conversations about their own risk tolerance and their own risk mitigation measures to understand once you know your threshold to understand, is it going to be okay to go to summer camp this year? Because before I knew my threshold, I wasn't confident that the camp would be able to make sure there was no peanut in everything. But now that I know my thresholds, I just need to watch to make sure I'm not on purpose eating a peanut. So there's a huge difference in the quality of life by knowing by knowing thresholds. Well, this seems that this type of testing will give you a good basis and a good start to have a really rich conversation with your allergist. I mean, now you're getting some tools. Now you're going to really dive in deep and talk about that. Can I go to camp? Can I travel overseas? How do I handle going to college? And so it just seems that this is going to give us more tools that are going to be pretty darn reliable. Well, and even more than that, Caroline, it also opens up conversations around precautionary labels. So somebody who's very sensitive to peanut ought to be avoiding foods that say may contain peanut or say process in a plant that also processes peanut. If there's a risk for cross-contamination, somebody who's very sensitive to peanuts should avoid that food. But somebody who's very tolerant of peanut, maybe not need to be as vigilant. And that's a conversation to have with the allergist. At that point, there's a reason to do something called a low-dose challenge. So eat a little bit of peanut because our blood test, which correlates with oral food challenges, says you can tolerate a lot of peanut eat a little bit of peanut in a safe environment, like with an allergist. So you get that confidence that 
this 14 milligrams, this 44 milligrams of peanut. So 25% of a kernel of peanut is not going to trigger an allergic reaction. There's a reason to do those kind of low dose challenges. And on those same kid, that same kid with that same level of tolerance, that's another conversation about starting oral immunotherapy. There's a lot of allergists now in the United States that are offering oral immunotherapy. Palforzia, which is an FDA approved peanut therapeutic, but also unregulated peanut oral immunotherapies being administered all over the country. And knowing thresholds is a reason to start talking about the utility of, of immunotherapy. Somebody who's very sensitive to peanut needs to be on oral immunotherapy. They don't have enough immunity on their own. They should really consider oral immunotherapy. While somebody who's very tolerant to peanut may not want to go through the hassle of oral immunotherapy. Oh, this is absolutely fascinating. So let's go deeper right on this topic here. So based on that ability to provide the predictive information about an allergic reaction, then how can this testing be of value for people looking at food challenges, you know, to avoid the overdiagnosis or like my kids heading off to college and oral immunotherapy? You're just talking about that too. So this could be the kind of test that you would take as you talk to your doctor about different treatments too. So if you can just go a little deeper on these topics, that'd be great. Absolutely. So the main utility of our test is to predict what will happen next time you eat peanut. And we're predicting it at different levels or different amounts of peanut. One answer is you're not allergic to peanut. So in an allergist office, safely trying peanut would be a good way to, to rule out an overdiagnosis, to rule out that you have peanut allergy, and you don't have to practice the strict avoidance. You can safely eat peanut. Another outcome of the test would be that you're highly tolerant to peanut, and you could do this low-dose challenge that I just described to help with confidence, to help with feeling secure, to help with knowing that you can go to college and your mom's not going to be at home worrying about you because you can actually tolerate a few amount of peanuts. In an allergist office, go ahead and try. And if you react and you have to use your epinephrine, then you know what the reaction feels like and you know how to use the epinephrine. A lot of people practice, but don't actually ever have to go through and actually administer it. So if there is an accidental ingestion and there is a reaction in an allergist office, once again, you can be taught to recognize the signs of a reaction and taught how to safely administer epinephrine. So there's even a positive outcome in the event that you do react in the allergist office. And then with oral immunotherapy, when we identify patients that are allergic to patient, uh, allergic to peanut and are very sensitive, we're identifying for the allergist and the caregiver, as well as the child, that this is something to consider now because the little girl is so sensitive to peanut, let's do consider palforzia or let's do consider um, sublingual therapy to give her some protection. So it informs a lot of conversations. You know, they say knowledge is power and it really is powerful, especially for us in this type of 
situation. So now looking at the test and turning to the test actually itself, I went onto the website and I watched this video and I was so surprised and excited to see such a broad level of access for the patients to getting this kind of test, to getting this information. So when and why would a listener be interested in this type of testing? And then what is the process for requesting the test? Again, I don't want to give away all the good stuff from the video. I'm going to let you explain this to everybody. But on that note too, you know, listeners, if you are interested in learning more, I'm going to make sure we have all the links to the different websites and to these videos. I'm a very visual person. So when I can see a video that explains a process, it sounds complicated to me in the beginning, this is the way to go. And so I promise you, I will have in the show notes, all those links. Great, Caroline. Well, um, you asked how can somebody get the test? And there's really two ways. Someone can go to their existing allergist and ask the allergist to order the test on their behalf. If the allergist doesn't know about allergenists and that the test is available, there is a discussion guide available on our website that the caregiver or the individual can download and take in to their allergist to help uh, the allergist understand why the person wants the test, but also how to get it. Many allergists are aware that the test is available and are set up to order the test. So it could be that the, that the existing allergist already is thinking about ordering the test. The other avenue for accessing the technology is through our website and through telemedicine. So a caregiver or an individual can log on, complete a brief three-minute questionnaire, and that triggers a telemedicine consult, including having a phlebotomist um, scheduled to come out to a time and place convenient to draw the blood, process the blood, and ship it to our laboratory. Once the laboratory has analyzed the specimen and results back to the telemedicine doctor, then the doctor contacts the the caregiver or the individual and sets up another consult. So again, there's two ways. One is to go online and initiate it on your own. Blood is done, could be done at your home, could be done on the weekend. It depends on what's a convenient time for your family schedule. Again, it's through telemedicine and we use allergists that are familiar with our, with our blood test, but also in treating food allergy. You can ask your own allergist to order the test for you. So now, is this test available nationwide? Is it every single state? Is it available to people globally? So could someone from Canada participate? The test is available in 49 states and the District of Columbia, but not yet the state of New York. So we're not yet able to test residents of the state of New York based on uh, New York State's own regulatory requirements. We have an application in and it's pending. Um, So we're eager to start testing in New York as well. But uh, yes, in 49 states in the district, anybody in any geography can get access to the test. And for international listeners, we are able to process doctor's orders. We work with the doctor or the individual to ensure that logistics can be set up to get the blood through customs and get it to our laboratory. So yes, we are able to accept orders from outside the U.S. as well. That is fascinating. And just because I'm a little biased right now with college students, but as long as you can get access to a phlebotomist, so they could actually go out to a college campus. Absolutely. We've been to some very unique places to draw blood. We, oh, we really? had a phlebotomist one time um, 
was met at the dock in a dinghy. They rode out in a dinghy to the sailboat to draw the blood. Another instance, the road to the farmhouse was too rough. It was almost an impassable road. So the phlebotomist met the patient at the end of the road by the cemetery. So we've been to some great places, but the goal is to have the blood drawn in a place and a time that's convenient, not having to go to a laboratory draw station or not going to back to the doctor's office to get blood drawn. These are great stories, but also I could see how helpful this could be to someone. You know, I live in Reno, Nevada, and so it's a good-sized town, but we have a lot of rural mining towns where there is health care there. They have, you know, urgent cares and, and so forth. And for them to drive into Reno for four hours is quite a bit, you know, a one-way drive for four hours. So I can see how this could be really helpful for people who maybe don't live in major cities. Well, also access to allergists. Um, so we know wait times for a new patient can be as up, as much as six months to get into an allergist. So having the interaction with our board certified allergist um, through telemedicine is helpful for sure. Having the access in rural areas is is certainly important. This is very unique. I don't think I've ever heard of this before where they're coming to you to take the blood draw. How wonderful for so many people. So now we're coming toward the end of our conversation. So before we get to our wrap up, what one takeaway do you want everyone to know from this conversation? Like what would be that one takeaway piece of information? It's really, um, I would say two points. The first is to confirm allergic status. Make sure that without a doubt, you know you are allergic to the particular food or your, your child is allergic to the food. You need to confirm that diagnosis. And allergy, food allergy is not binary. You need to ask what's the threshold, what's the highest tolerated dose, or the corollary, what's the cumulative reactive dose? How much milk is it going to take before my child has a reaction, or how much egg, or how much pistachio? And that is known through going through an oral food challenge. For peanut, you could have a predictor in our blood test, and we are continuing in developing our blood test for other foods. But back to your question, Caroline, the two points. One is make sure you get a confirmed diagnosis. And if you are, in fact, allergic to the food, ask for thresholds. That is amazing information. Well, Jim, it is time for us to wrap up. I really appreciate your time today. You are super busy. You're the CEO of a company that's working to absolutely change our world. And I want to leave listeners with some information so listeners, I want to invite you to visit the website enjoylifeinthenow.com and this website is from Allergenis and it shares some very heartfelt and some important testimonials and the reason I suggest this is we need all the tools. We need to see everything and we know that as food allergy parents and caregivers, we look to each other for information. So for me, it's important to connect with somebody who's maybe been through this and so I'm going to make sure again, in the show notes that you're going to have access to the discussion guide, all the different websites, the videos, and then especially this website. So you can take a look at some of these testimonials and see what people are experiencing. So Jim, I thank you so much for your time. Again, you were super busy. I absolutely appreciate you making time for us. And I really appreciate, you know, your support through the years. Well, thanks for having me again, Caroline. And thanks for telling your story also. 
You are very welcome. You know, I do think it is important to talk about that food allergy, PTSD, and getting more knowledge because, again, that's going to bring down anxiety. That's going to impact the quality of our life. And, you know, when you look at it, that's what we're all working toward, right? Improving the quality of life of people with food allergies. That's right. So thank you again, Jim, for being with us today. Thank you very much. Again, we want to thank the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology for sponsoring this week's Facts Roundtable podcast. Thank you for listening to Facts Roundtable podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes coming soon. Please subscribe, leave a review, and listen to our podcast on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Have a great day and always be kind to one another.